One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Another school shooting, another Twitter rant. We talk this week's news and the bad stories we tell ourselves with author and podcaster Steve Almond. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. We will warn you that we have kind of a long discussion today, and we'll tell you more about that in a minute. Before we jump in, we want to thank everyone who has joined us over on patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to support our work. Your monthly support enables us to absorb all the costs associated with the podcast, including building our team so that we can bring you higher quality episodes. It also lets us do more of this work that we love and further the mission of having more nuanced dialogue in our communities by doing some speaking opportunities. We bring Lots of extra content to our friends on Patreon, and you also get to be sort of involved in the community. We've done several polls lately about different show topics and ideas for primers. So if you want to be closer to the Pantsuit Politics world, join us at patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. We are very, very grateful for all of you. Sadly, we have had another school shooting in the United States of America. There was a shooting at Santa Fe High School in Texas. Ten people, eight students, and two teachers were killed. Thirteen were injured in a 15-minute assault. I think what is so tragic about this story, they're all tragic in their own ways, right? And what is so tragic about this one to me, that there were just so many warning signs. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to talk about this in a new way because we keep having these things happen. We keep burying more children and teachers. 
we keep going back to the same old tired debates. The only thing I know to say this time is that I find myself wondering even more than usual, why does this keep happening? Mm. What is, I under, I, we can have the gun conversation and we've had it a lot here. I want to know why we have so many prospective school shooters. Mm-hmm. Well, the heartbreaking part of the narrative that seems to be surrounding this particular school shooting, and I don't know if it was because of the some of the language from the students coming out of the school or if it's just where we are as a nation, but there does seem to be this shift of, well, this is this is how it is. Now we have to prepare our students to go to war. Like they inter- I think everybody was struck by the CNN interview with the student afterwards when they said, were you surprised? And she said, no, this is what happens, right? This is how it, this is how it works. Of course I wasn't surprised. So that narrative of schools as war zones, it seems to have passed from sort of a metaphor we use to no, this is this is the new reality that we have to prepare our high school students and younger for gun violence on a mass scale, which is the most absolute depressing thing I can possibly imagine. And I don't know what to do because that just doesn't work, right? Mm. I'm I'm not prepared for a, a a country in which we accept as inevitable that some of our children are going to be slaughtered at school. Mm-hmm. Well, and to your point about this particular situation and both the warning signs and sort of the disturbing nature of the shooter and also the access he had to guns. The two things I I was thinking about. First, I watched a documentary on HBO called A Dangerous Son about, you know, I think the statistic was one in 10 children are emotionally disturbed, just excessively violent, um, prone to emotional outbursts, just don't have the, the capacity or skills to control their violent tendencies, basically. And I was so struck by the lack of resources. And they talked about like Adam Lanza and how everybody wanted to blame his mom. And this woman wrote this viral post and she's featured in the film called I Am Adam Lanza's Mother about how she just, she had a son who she knew was dangerous and was exhibiting all these warning signs and how she just felt abandoned by society that there were, everybody basically wants to say, like if you were try, if you would try harder, if you would discipline your child, and there's just no mental health resources because we deinstitutionalized, and so there's no place or system. You know, one of the mothers featured in the film lives in this, I think it was the state of Washington, and she was trying desperately to get her son into a residential treatment facility, and there were six beds for the entire state for kids like this, six. And it just, you know, it put in stark relief how bad the situation is, that it's really not about, oh, well, do do these kids exhibit warning signs? We can all see these stories and say, yeah, they did. It's what then do we do? Where do we send these people? Do we have good systems in place? And for these emotionally disturbed kids who are a danger to themselves and to others. I was sitting at church this weekend. Our church had an important decision to make. And so I had a specially called meeting for it. And I was noticing sitting there as a relatively new member of the church, kind of how much time has been devoted to this decision. And even during the meeting, how much time was devoted before anybody got into the business to talk about, here's how we want to make this kind of decision. Here's how we want to talk about this to each other and with each other. 
once a decision had been made, there was intentional time devoted to this. There aren't winners and losers here. You know, we are one congregation. We are one body. We sang a song at the end. I mean, it was very slow and methodical. And I was observing it. I was kind of both in it and observing it. You know, that feeling when you're out of your body watching something as well as being very connected to the present moment. And I kept thinking, this is an extraordinary amount of time and care and thought going into this conversation. And it made me teary sitting there in the pew because I was thinking about this school shooting and about how rare it is that we slow down enough to have that kind of time and thought and care put into anything and how different we might be if we were to do that and how much more we might see in each other if we were to do that, how many people might have a different perspective on folks who have these tendencies. It just calls to mind for me, like, what what are our priorities in America right now? If we If we don't want to support a variety of types of care for folks struggling on a spectrum of mental health issues. We all fall somewhere on that spectrum, right? And if we don't want to have a real conversation in our communities about what we are going to do to keep our schools safe, and if we don't want to have the gun conversation, you know, so many people want to just instantly shut the gun conversation down. If you don't even want to talk about that, tell me what you do want to talk about. What are we not too busy for? What are we not too cheap for? What is it that we care enough about to dig into a little bit? One of my favorite aspects of Moms Demand Action, which is a common sense gun organization that I belong to, is they have a program called Be Smart. And this shooter was able to kill 10 people with two guns that were legally owned by his father that were clearly not secured or he would not have gained access to them. And this Be Smart program really puts the impetus on adults to secure their weapons, to ask, to start conversations when your children come over to houses saying, is there a gun in your home? Is it secured? I should hope that we could at least start there. If we're not going to start about any government action with regards to the the purchasing or licensing or universal background checks, which I all support, then can we at least start with just securing and making sure your children can't gain access to your weapons? Would that be too much to ask? I think another detail of this story that jumps out at me, and by the way, we jumped right into this. I want to say how tragic this is. We are so sorry this happened. I think we're mm. almost paralyzed sometimes. I, I really didn't know what to say when this happened because it's just over and over but i am so sorry to these families and all the people in texas who are suffering and everybody across the nation who's just reckoning with this again mm-hmm. another detail that jumped out to me about it was that the shooter said in some format that he wanted to have his story told mm. and it hit me so hard because i thought why aren't we listening to these why why would somebody believe that the only way to have their story mm-hmm. told is to come into their school and kill their classmates and teachers. What, like, what mm-hmm. is happening? Mm-hmm. That I thought that was so striking, and you know, it's so difficult. I remember, sort of, in my own community, both times because we've had two school shootings, that there's just this weird 
dance you do between wanting to understand, and in order to understand, you feel the desire and the need to know more about the shooter, while at the same time not wanting in any way, shape, or form to do like, like just glamorize or make famous or put attention on this heinous act. And it's, I think we all struggle with that. And it's so hard. And when you hear, like you said, like somebody feeling like the only way they get their story told is to commit violence on another human being, it's so sad and so depressing, but also in a weird way, not surprising, just not surprising because there is so much attention given to the shooters and there is so much glamorization of violence in our culture. And it's just depressing and it's numbing. I'm starting to feel so numb to it all. And that's why I just have to do the best I can to channel it into something worthwhile with an organization and with the work we do with that. Because I don't know, you know, I've cried a river between my school shooting and now, and that's not doing anything. So it's so frustrating to just feel back in that place and back in that place and being asked to think about this senseless strategy and to be thinking about the promise of lives lost, especially at the end of the school year, especially at graduation at this time where everybody's going into adulthood and you're thinking about the next step or the next grade and people are celebrating and to think of all those celebrations cut short is excruciating to think about this problem child and the fact that this was the only way that he could feel hurt and feel heard is just it's too much sometimes it's just too much it's too much and it's also i think better to get lost in that too much than to get lost in the same old fights with each other Mm. you know i started scrolling twitter when this happened and i just stopped because i thought i don't i don't want to do this i'm so disinterested Mm -hmm. in the back and forth talking points on this i'm tired of it I, and I'm not saying don't make it political. It is political. It is absolutely political in every sense of the word. If it is not political to talk about what we want our communities to be like and whether we want our schools to be safe for our children or not, then I, I don't know what politics is supposed to accomplish. It is political. But my goodness, can we find a different way? Because we are not getting anywhere. This this is insanity on all of our parts. You know, we're just expecting something to change, doing the same stuff every single time. And I just I want out of that cycle to find something that helps us identify these children who want to have their stories told and think this is the way to get there. Switching gears quite dramatically, mm. which is hard to do. Honestly, I've been kind of mm-hmm. paralyzed even in creating the outline for today's show. I was like, I don't I don't really know how to do this. So we're just going to acknowledge that it's hard and it's awful and we don't have any answers, but we are open to exploring them. We'll switch into trade. I actually think that there is some decent, if if not confusing, trade news happening, Sarah. The administration has suspended a plan for tariffs on about $150 billion in Chinese goods after three days of negotiations. And what causes me to feel a little bit um, heartened about this is that there is a promise of additional negotiations in China. So we're at least talking to each other. 
Steve Mnuchin said over the weekend that the trade war has been put on hold. And while I don't think that's the way the Secretary of the Treasury ought to talk about these things, I am happy to hear that result. Uh, the White House's objective, I think, has has been to get China to increase the purchase of American goods. They're floating this number of $200 billion. I'm not sure it's wise to be floating that number, and I seriously doubt that there will be anything close to that number on China's end before it's all said and done. But But that's the conversation right now. Did you see this photo from the trade talk that was circulating on the internet? Mm-mm. So this was the most circulated photo in the U.S.-China train talk in China. It was tweeted by Crystal Hu. It says, trending on Weibo, people compare the trade negotiations with the signing of the Boxer Protocol in 1901. So on the top, you have a photo of the U.S. and Chinese delegation. The Chinese delegation is easily, on average, approximately 20 years younger than the U.S. delegation. The U.S. delegation is all very old white men. The Chinese delegation is very young people, including several women. Then it is juxtaposed with a picture from the Boxer Protocol in 1901 with representatives from the West as the young group. Now, still just only men. And on the other side, there are aging, elderly envoys from the Qing dynasty. So it's like it's switched, right? That you have this Young, up and coming, not, I mean, it's insane to talk about China's up and coming because thousands of girls, but just very interesting contrast that left me a little cold as an American because I feel like these trade talks are just fluctuations and bluster on our side and single handed focus on theirs. And I realize that is an oversimplification and probably not the entire picture, but. You know, we go back and forth, we change our tune, we put on hold, and they just keep getting more and more of what they want. And, you know, it's not that I think this is a zero-sum game in which China has to win and the United States has to lose or vice versa, but I would like to feel like our side is, you know, well-represented, and I just don't. Especially given that the most serious issues at stake when you talk about our two economies— in a bilateral way, are tech issues. There are intellectual property around technology. Mm-hmm. There are cybersecurity issues. I mean, that's the big deal with ZTE. ZTE is the phone provider that you might have heard about, at least tangentially, in connection with the trade talks. And the, the major concern about ZTE, in addition to them violating U.S. law by supplying phones to Iran and North Korea in violation of sanctions— is that they're, we suspect that they're spying on us through cellular devices that they manufacture and send into the United States. And so you do want a group of people well-versed in some pretty cutting-edge tech issues in these trade talks. Mm. Not to mm. say that you cannot be that if you are above a certain age. You, you certainly can be. And there's some very sophisticated technology users as part of the older generation. It would be nice to feel that there is a, a greater diversity of representation on the U.S. side of the table here. And it also would be encouraging for the president to not tweet about it. Oh, you know what? Let's just take that as our transition since we're talking about the president tweeting. He had some things to say on Sunday. Things is the only word I can think to describe it. Things. 
I liked how the New York Times described it as public venting. I thought that Mm -hmm. was a very appropriate and accurate descriptor. Well, the New York Times seems to be the one who set it off because they reported a story that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates might have offered assistance, um, particularly social media assistance, to the Trump campaign, which just because sometimes we have to state the obvious, foreign governments helping one candidate defeat the other is really not what we want. (laughs) Oh, you have to laugh sometimes. Oh, I know. I don't know what to talk about with this story right now because I find this exhausting too. I don't want to follow every syllable that Rudy Giuliani utters. Mm. I don't believe a lot of those syllables about his characterizations of what the Mueller team has told him. I, I worry about Rod Rosenstein's stress levels, you know, and his blood pressure. <laughs> his health. His health in general. And I know, I am just certain, I am more convicted as time goes on that we just have no idea where all this is going. Yeah, we really, when he, well, when they're talking about this September 1st deadline into the investigation of the collusion, I just kind of want to giggle and be like, because that's what you, that's you, that that's what you think your biggest concern is, don't you? You think once that's done, you can all move on with your lives as if that's, I think that Bob Mueller has a much bigger picture in mind, I'm sure be honest. I think that's right. I I don't know what it is, and I don't want to make predictions about that. I'm just coming to conclude that I want to follow this and understand where it is, but I do not want to obsess about it or get wrapped up in any possible outcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard when he's crowing like that. And when they were saying, like, I was listening to NPR this morning, they're like, he made a request on Twitter. And I just want to be like, why are we talking about that? Like, that's a thing. That is not a thing. An official request on Twitter is not a thing. A demand. It was a, a demand. demand. He, I hereby Ugh. demand. And this hereby. is a really big deal. It is a really big deal. But honestly, until Congress decides it's a big deal, it doesn't matter that I think it's a big deal. Mm, that's depressing. It is. So depressing. All right. So in the interest, we've we've covered as much as we can and emotionally are willing to cover at this point on all these stories. So we are going to skip compliment the other side because we have a very long interview with Steve Allman coming up next. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. 
Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are about to share with you our conversation with author Steve Almond. He has written nine books of fiction and nonfiction, including Candy Freakin' Against Football. His latest book is called Bad Stories, which he describes as a literary investigation of what happened in our country. He also hosts the New York Times Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed. So we started this conversation and we we talked a little bit about Steve's book and bad stories and how we sort of our initial reactions to it. And then we're wrapping up the interview when he said, basically, I have a lot more to share. And then the conversation took a very interesting direction. And I'm so glad that we kept going and that he was sort of vulnerable with us and we were vulnerable back because I think the conversation got very, very interesting. So we're just going to share the whole thing with you unedited so that you can hear the real conversation and the discussion about stories, because I think this is really the first step in reversing this bad stories he talks about in his book. We are excited to be joined by Steve Allman today. Steve, you're one of our favorite podcasters. Thank you for being here. Sure. And you have written a book called Bad Stories. Will you tell everyone what inspired you with the many interests you have and the many different things you've done in your life to sit down and write a book about the bad stories in our politics? Yeah, the bad stories in our whole culture, I guess, but it's showing up certainly in our politics. Well, I think like a lot of people, um, you know, I have three young kids. I have a, a 11-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter, and they were a year younger than that uh, on election night. I've always been somebody who's written about sort of our moral discourse and our and our political discourse. That's something I've done for a lot of my career, although I also do these other things like doing a podcast with Cheryl Strait and writing short stories and failed novels and you know, kind of literary work. <laughs> I'm a former journalist and apostate journalist, so I have a 
a sort of concerted interest in in the the larger American story and the morality of 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 America as a set of people. So uh, that's always been on my mind. And then if you you know if you've been following what was happening in the election, it was I think darkly mesmerizing that the the election was be, you know it became something that wasn't a contest of ideas. It was a sort of brawl with with uh, insults flying in a way that was really unprecedented and disturbing. And when you have kids, you know, they, they you can sort of hide certain things from them, but they all recognize mean. I mean, at a very basic level, they're not necessarily the most sophisticated, but they're highly absorbent. They get when somebody's mean, they get when somebody's a bully, they get when somebody's mm-hmm. sneering. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of where our discourse was taken. And I don't mean just particular political actors or Trump in particular. I mean, we were all mesmerized by it and kind of shaken up by it. And some people were getting off on it and other people were getting off on being horrified by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the result was that this election, the election night, I just had this moment at three or four in the morning of seeing my kids were down in Florida in this little hotel room and the kids were sleeping. And I just looked at them and I had two thoughts. There are 10, eight, and three at this point. Two of them are daughters. And the first thought was, what what would it feel like to be a parent of color or an immigrant or a Muslim American and to have three little kids and to think about, as a parent, can I keep my kids safe in America? And then I thought a second thing, which was, how am I going to explain this to my kids? And I don't want this to sound partisan because it's really just at a basic level of morality and kind of, it's almost like just a parenting issue. How do I explain to my kids who are not dumb? Kids aren't dumb. They, they, they see things much more clearly, I think morally than, than the adult world, which we have our defenses and our rationalizations and stuff. How do I explain to my kids that the person who's now the leader of the country is somebody who bragged about sexually assaulting women, teased a handicapped person, um, you know, or, or I should say a person with disabilities, uh, you know, sort of openly mocked all kinds of people of color and, and, and incited violence at his, violences at his rallies. This, these are really questions that are um, sort of upstream from anything like policy. Uh, it was just more, how do I explain how somebody who probably wouldn't be allowed onto one of their playgrounds is now the occupant of the Oval Office. And I understood that I kind of had two choices. I would either try to ignore it and write short stories and mostly lie around in a pool of dread, or I could make some effort to try to figure out how um, the American story reached this point and use my set of very limited tools. I'm a storyteller. I understand the world through stories. I think we're a storytelling species. And what I realized as I tried to tease out my my feelings about all this and is that all these bad outcomes in our American, in our political life are the result of bad stories. And if we step back from history, even half a step, rather than reacting in the moment to all these bad outcomes, um, we need to sort of ask what stories have we been telling ourselves, telling each other, consenting to that are leading to these bad outcomes? Because we can try to stop a particular bad political actor or even a movement that is anti-democratic and so forth. But 
another one will just arise until that point we can step back and say, what bad stories led to these bad outcomes? What I really love about this is because I think what I learned and what I sort of internalized so profoundly and took away from the 2016 election is that politics is so emotional. And I think that's what you get at so well when you talk about the stories we tell ourselves, because I think I grew up and kind of came of age politically with this idea, you know, I kind of became more liberal in college and it was based on like learning all this information. And it was, it was at the time when the, the catchphrase was what's the matter with Kansas. And it was all this, like, why do people, you know, people vote against their economic interests. And there was this sort of, the story was like, if we could just, at least the story I internalized was if we could just get the right information in front of people, (laughs) like it's like a math equation, right? Like people go into the voting booth and do some sort of arithmetic as opposed to feeling profoundly that they are either part of the story or not part of the story or connecting with a politician's story. Right. And I, th- I think you got at that so well, because that is, that's what's happening. And it, it, particularly as a person on the left, I feel a lot of frustration with this narrative that like people are just stupid or people don't understand their economic interest. And I'm like, that's not what this is about. Like I said, like people, you know, I, I always joke that I lived a long time thinking like, if I could just get the right long read in front of people, like, no, if you read this article, you'll really like everything will click into place for you. Right. But that's not how it works. No, I don't think so. I think that people live in their emotional lives mm-hmm. and they use that emotional life to, to tell a story, to construct a story. Um, and I think like one of the American habits that's really, it's not a left or right thing. It's just an American habit is that we tend to exalt our grievances as a way of hiding from our vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And if you really look at somebody who's voting against their economic interests, almost always what they're doing is, is exalting a grievance that immigrant's going to take my job. Our cities are going to be infiltrated by dark others who have a different agenda as a way of, uh, of, in some ways, looking away from and not having to contend with their vulnerabilities. I'm not sure if I can pay for my medical insurance. I'm not, I'm not sure why I'm working two or three jobs and I don't seem to be able to keep up with the bills, dot, dot, dot. But I think that's an American habit to exalt our grievances as a way of, of hiding from vulnerabilities. And I think we have a a media environment where very clever uh, demagogues have recognized this and they are every day in a tireless way, rather than trying to understand the reality of our circumstances, creating very powerful narratives that almost always have to do with um, people being in danger in some way or another, that Mm -hmm. that they're coming for your guns, they're coming for your religion, they're coming for your way of life, they're coming for your grandma. They're going to put her on a death panel. Uh, and those are very seductive. You know, this is as a fiction writer, I understand the the idea of stakes. If you want to get the reader involved, you have to ratchet up the threat level. And I think demagogues all across the spectrum, but in, in particular on the right, recognize that and exploit that. They don't make their listeners feel like it's all going to be OK. They say to their listeners, those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and anger and fear and rage that you feel in those snarls of traffic in that workplace that doesn't recognize who you are or your value while the CEO is you know, taking home uh, you know, millions of dollars, those feelings are real. And I have the solution to that. I know what, the, what ails you and who's coming after you and who's to blame. And then they've got a, you know, a set of villains, the elitists, the globalists, the immigrants, the you know, Muslim sleeper cells, dot, 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 dot. 
But the idea of those demagogues is to build audience share. They're not really trying to improve anything because, in fact, improving things would eliminate the need for them, the demagogue, to kind of, you know, sort of minister to their flock. What they're really doing, and this is the utter cynicism of it, is that they're making tons and tons of money by telling bad stories. And those bad stories caught up with America and led to I, what I believe are really damaging, terrible outcomes. I think even more than telling the bad stories, they are training Americans to ask bad questions. I was saying to Sarah before we hopped on this call that as I'm reading your book, I keep coming back to this mental image of Stonehenge. And my experience of being at Stonehenge was so powerful because I kept looking at these structures thinking, what kinds of questions were these folks asking themselves to to do something so magnificent? And in reading your book, it struck me so profoundly that we have all these bad stories because we are asking really petty, small questions as a civilization compared to the people who created Stonehenge and, and the civilizations that gave rise to Greek and Roman mythology. And that's what the cable news cycle feels like to me, a series of really bad questions. We have a school shooting and we quibble over whether it's 22 school shootings this year or seven, right? I think our questions keep getting smaller and smaller, and that's why these bad stories keep unfolding. I, I wonder how that relationship between questions and story hits you. As you know from reading the book, we have a, a, a media ecosystem at this point that used to be, there used to be an idea of the media, the fourth estate is the people's representative in Washington, which means that they would ask questions that are meant to hold people in power accountable. So the central question that we should be asking right now is where is the sensible gun control legislation? Not taking somebody, not the bad story of they're trying to get rid of the second amendment. They're going to, they're going to take all your guns. That's a paranoid fantasy that's used to kind of gin up resistance to what are really quite obvious and reasonable gun control measures that every single other industrialized nation has, has put into place and has demonstrably decreased the number of the deadly shootings. This is just objective reality. And so the question is, that why isn't the question persistently from every quarter of of the culture um okay where's the legislation why don't we have universal background checks why don't we have you know why don't we raise the age of when you can have a weapon why don't we make it illegal to have an unsecured weapon or give a weapon to a mind etc cetera, etc cetera. there are all these obvious measures and there's no mystery here this isn't some uh, thing like stone stonehenge that we look at as a mystery this is people who love selling weapons meant to kill things. Uh, that's their livelihood, having a profound influence on our political system and media not asking. And the, the representatives uh, of that industry, that gun lobby, those gun manufacturers, having enough pull in our political system, having basically feeding enough money into uh, to particular candidates to essentially make them their servants in Washington. That to me is, it's not terribly complex. People try to make it complicated, but it's really simple. The question is, why don't we have sensible gun control? And it's because our political system is sufficiently corrupt. And I guess our media system, to your point, is sufficiently feckless that rather than having, rather than asking that question, they stage these kind of mock debates 
in which one side is spinning paranoid conspiracy fantasies and the other side is having to respond to those talk about talking about arming teachers as some way to keep kids safe these kind of crazy notions that no right thinking social scientist or anybody who's really thought the issue through would come to so you know i i think some of it has to do with the fact that we're not asking basic moral questions and that i very much agree with you on to me a lot of this is that we don't want to look at why the most prosperous country in the history of the world uh, has such a high poverty rate, has such an insane level of income inequality. You know, I mentioned the grapes of wrath at the end of this book. And one of the most profound questions, you want to talk about a question that I've always thought about for years. It's one of these immigrants who's, you know, moving to California because of the Dust Bowl and they can't support themselves on the family farms they used to run. And he hears that there's a, he hears that there's a, a man out in California who owns 100,000 acres of land. And he asked this question, and if anybody can answer this question, you get a gold star because I've never been able to answer it. This guy says, really with a sense of wonder, uh, almost religious wonder, he says, what could a man need? How could a single man need 100,000 acres of land? It's not like, how dare he? It's more, that is bewildering to me. What would one human being do with all that land? And I think that's a question that we don't ask at all. We don't ask moral questions. Why is it okay for uh, huge corporations to get huge tax cuts when we've got when we're okay as a country with kids being you know kicked off of food stamps? Um, it, it, why are we uh, okay with the idea that huge corporations can charge you know massive amounts of money for medication? And we are not okay with the idea that we would help kids, um, that the federal government would help kids go to college, since education is allegedly what's going to kind of keep keep America competitive in, in the big picture. There are all these basic moral questions that never get asked. Why is it okay for a man to have 100,000 acres of land? And, you know, I just, I think that's part of our, the erosion of our uh, our culture is that we're not allowed. And, and in particular, and I'd be interested to hear you guys speak to this in particular, why aren't Christians speaking about this? I mean, I really, uh, I'm an, I'm a Jewish atheist agnostic, but I love the sermon on the Mount. I think it's one of the most beautiful and enduring, um, sort of philosophical expressions of, of humanity that's ever been set down by a human being. And, and, you know, the Beatitudes are very simple and basic. They really say the meek shall inherit the earth. And it is not the place of human beings to gather treasure onto them. They will rust. They'll be beset by moths. That's not how you get into heaven. That's not what a meaningful life is. And I just I kind of stand stunned before the capitalist spectacle of wealth being deified, of the pursuit, the kind of boundless greedy pursuit of money and gold and, uh, you know, sort of material goods that we all every day consent to. It feels to me like we're terribly morally out of balance. I think what's so interesting to examine, what really helped me think through the stories we tell and exactly what you're talking about, sort of the moral, how are the stories we tell are a reflection of our moral values. Because when, when I talk to my friends who are very supportive of gun rights and 
are also terrified for their children's safety. And I have to think through, like, I know these people, they're good people, they care about their kids. How could we come out on such different sides of this? I think what really helped me and changed the way I think about the stories we tell ourselves and particularly helped me see other people's stories in a different way was by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. And it just helped me realize that the moral judgments are different, right? He, he has this really cool framework where he talks about, particularly on the left, we're concerned with fairness and um, we're concerned with care, which are very important moral values. But there's also these moral values of sort of respect for the the tribe, the group, respect for authority, loyalty, which are also important. And I, I think what's what you see in in stories that can really appeal to a broad array of people, and I think about President Obama a lot with this, is that he was able to touch those those moral values with the same story. And that's a very difficult thing to do, right? To tell a story that appeals to people and we're going to protect ourselves by being fair and caring for other people. Like that is a tough line to walk. That's a tough story to tell fairly. And I think what you can see, I think one of the, the most interesting sort of takeaways for the 2016 election for me is how quickly the bad stories can, can, can kind of get out of the sort of wreak havoc and go wild on even the people telling them, right? Mitch McConnell has been telling these bad stories, but is sort of having to suffer some of the consequences of those stories getting beyond what I think he could even have envisioned. So, you know, I think that one of the best things I heard was somebody after or during the 2016 election was saying like, you know, there, and I, I, I totally agree with this as someone who lived in D.C., that there are a lot of sort of insiders, lawmakers, lobbyists who perpetuate bad stories with a wink and a nod, understanding that they don't believe these things, that they don't right. don't agree with these moral judgments. But, you know, what happened was they were doing it with a wink and a nod, but a lot of people were fully invested in these stories. And right. so after you tell me for so long to be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, and you're not doing anything except for just letting us elect you, that's why you see such hatred on the right for Mitch McConnell. Like, so I think that's what's in, a, in an effort to understand sort of, well, what what are these moral judgments and what where are the moral values behind these stories that might be different from mine, but that are not necessarily less. Right. And yeah. so I think that that's but you you see how they can just even get out of the get out of the control of the people telling them. Because I think when you say respect for the group, loyalty to authority, and then you're a Republican who tries to criticize the president, that's why you see this hatred for John McCain, right? This this rhino narrative, this because you weren't being loyal to the group. And that's a that's a right. prime moral value for me. And I think that, you know, we're such a big, messy, complicated country with such different backgrounds and experiences and different moral values. And I think that that's being able to tell a story or like Beth says, maybe the first step is to, like she was discussing, like asking the right question so that we can just say, okay, well, wait, what are our shared moral values here? Like we're, when we're telling these stories and and our and we feel like we're living in different realities because we kind of are, we're telling, we're living in different stories, right? Yeah. How do we, how do we try to understand each other? Well, yeah, I'm not sure that that is going to happen a whole lot. I think if you're somebody who's been listening to right-wing radio for 30 or 40 years, I'm not going to touch that person. They have constructed uh, their own particular worldview. And honestly, I don't see much use in trying to whisper or shout into that person's ear 
because they've been listening to a particular story about white victimization for 40 years. And that is how they construct reality. And you know what? They're a citizen. And in America, you get to tell your own story and you get to, you know, enact your values based on that, that, that story. I think for me, the big important thing to recognize is that you really, the dark matter in our public and civic life is apathy. The big winner in the 2016 election, once again, the, 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 was people who decided was civic apathy was people who decided not to exercise their franchise. You've got 62 or three who voted for Trump, 66 who voted for Hillary Clinton's million. This is and 104 million American citizens who didn't bother to exercise their franchise. And the real question is, since those people do have skin in the game and it appreciably matters what policies politicians are going to pursue, not just what stories they're going to tell, but what policies they're going to pursue. Um, you know, how do we reach those people? Uh, and whether that's people on the right or left, how do we reach them and say, this matters, you should exercise your franchise. You, you know, y democracy is not a self-driving car. Mm -hmm. I think that's the big, for me, the big bad story was that we could just uh, kind of sit back and the, the deeply committed folks could kind of go to their separate corners and not worry about the 104 million people who weren't going to vote at all. Um, I have to say that I don't find the, the, uh, the shit. I think, um, I think actually Americans have a pretty share. Most Americans have a pretty shared set of values when it comes to what do they want? They want to be able to raise their kids. They want their kids to have opportunity. Um, they want to make sure that government is working for them rather than, um, ignoring them. I think almost everybody everywhere in the spectrum would agree with that. And I think actually this is a, an, an old idea that a story that we've lost touch with, um, late in the book, I quote from Ro Teddy Roosevelt's new nationalism speech. He says in that speech at many stages in the advance of humanity, this conflict between the men who possess more than they have earned and the men who have earned more than they possess is the central condition of progress. In our day, it appears as the struggle of free men to gain and hold the right of self-government as against the special interests who twist the methods of free government into machinery for defeating the popular will at every stage and under all circumstances. The essence of the struggle is to equalize opportunity, destroy privilege, and give to the life and citizenship of every individual the highest possible value, both to himself and the commonwealth. That is nothing new. All I ask in civil life is what you fought for in the Civil War. You can't tell me that there aren't 200 million American voting citizens who would not agree with that. I think everybody all across the spectrum would listen to those words, and if they really paid attention, would say, yep, I can get on board with that. I agree with that. It is the job of, of our government in a sense, and the right of, and the obligation of our self-government to make sure that the people are not crushed by special interests and that the popular will to create greater opportunity for everybody is not crushed by greedy people who want to aggregate wealth and power. I, I just honestly believe that most people believe that. Well, I think that's a nice note to end on because what it says to me is that 
part of what we have to do to get out of these bad stories is make room for better ones. And that's probably how we bring more people into the process too, to allow for some new good stories. Thank you so much for being here, Steve. We really appreciate your time. Okay. Is there, is there more you want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, I actually think bad stories are not, (laughs) I mean, I I appreciate that you guys want to, um, you know, sort of focus on the redemptive power of stories. And I very much at the end of the book want to suggest, hey, bad stories lead to bad outcomes, but good stories also lead to good outcomes, right? Mm. What I would say is that bad stories don't arise in a vacuum. Particular people tell bad stories in order to, you know, uh, uh, affect, to, to, to gather wealth and power. And that isn't going to go away because a bunch of people sort of collectively say, well, we should get along more or we should listen to better stories. I guess what I'm getting at is that the special interests uh, that, that Teddy Roosevelt is talking about have a lot of power and they have a lot of power in our politics specifically because we have opened up our politics to huge amounts of money. And that money really represents the power to tell corrosive, fraudulent, propagandistic stories and those have distorted the ability for Americans all across the political spectrum to recognize that they actually do agree and they actually do want the same set of things. What we've done is allow people and in fact, uh, very you know, wealthy, powerful people to sow discord and create those divisions for profit. And we have to actively oppose all of the people who do that, whether it's a demagogue or whether it's a you know a, a hugely wealthy individual who wants to increase their port- the portfolio of their of their fossil fuel company, or whether it's the Russian leader who recognized that he couldn't de- defeat America militarily, couldn't defeat America uh, economically, but he could he could defeat America, or at least could send America into a kind of spiral by spreading bad stories. Like all of these people have a certain intention and you don't undo an intention just by telling a good story. You have to recognize who are the bad storytellers and how do we turn away from their bad stories and expose them and not allow them to have such giant megaphones. Here's what I really struggle with when you, when we talk about this, when we talk about, like you said, the bad storytellers and the, particularly the influence of money, because I think Part of the reason you have 104 million Americans not exercising their right to vote is because the story they tell themselves is that it doesn't matter. It's not like they're ignorant of those influences. I think most Americans feel on a a profound emotional level that there are huge, powerful players in a game they are not a part of. And so I struggle with how, because I feel that myself as a person with a platform, as an elected official, I feel this sense of like, oh, the deck is stacked, stacked mm-hmm. so much in favor of money and corporate influences. Like it's so, but I, and I don't want to become hopeless and I don't want to become, feel powerless. And so I think what's so difficult is to um, acknowledge that reality without perpetuating a story that we are powerless. And what does it matter anyway? Because you're going to have moneyed interest and you're going to have corporate influence. And so why do we, why should we even bother? What do we, what am I as an individual middle-class American going to do to make a difference? Well, I think you're right. And in a sense, 
what the, the, the biggest bad story is that the one I focus on at the end, that America is incapable of moral progress. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's, there's this idea of depressing the vote. And there's both the, the original sense of depressing the vote, right? The bad story that America is a representative democracy, right? That all men are created equal when the person who wrote that owned other people, right? Mm-hmm. And African-Americans weren't allowed to vote and women for the first half of this country's history weren't allowed to vote. We had the Jim Crow era. We have the modern voter suppression efforts. America's not a representative democracy, right? We have the Electoral College, which is this way of electing the president that's basically slave owner math applied to our electoral system. But larger than that, there are those structural um, uh, structural things built into our structural electoral system that are dis- that are deeply dispiriting. But the bigger story that I think people, particularly on the right, as a minority party with very unpopular policies, part of their electoral mandate is to make people feel frustrated and exhausted and exasperated and turn off to the whole thing, to muddy the waters so much that people will just throw up their hands with frustration and walk away from political engagement. It's utterly cynical and it's and it's on display every single time you listen to an elected official and in particular to a demagogue. They're trying to make people lose faith in, in American democracy. And if you look at a story like Watergate, okay, the, the first story, the bad, first bad story that I focus on in the book was this idea that Watergate was about a corrupt president. And the way it gets told is usually, ah, oh, there was this corrupt president and he was running a criminal espionage ring out of the Oval Office. And ah, uh, isn't it just a lesson in how much power corrupts and how those guys in Washington are all left, right, center, they're all corrupt. They're all bought by special interests. But I don't think that's really what the story of Watergate is. The story of Watergate is really about a shared idealism that all of us felt that the entire culture said it is not okay to have a person who is engaged in criminal acts in the Oval Office. And that was the public that responded with a sense of, of outrage and even supporters of that president. It doesn't matter. He happens to have been a Republican, but it doesn't matter what party he was from. It was more that people had there was a moral consensus among the people and they were distressed by it. And the fourth estate did its thing and asked who broke into right, the DNC and what, you know, what were their motivations. And the courts in crucial moments came through and ultimately Congress came through and said, we must rid ourselves of this cancer on our democracy. That's a story about shared idealism. And the other thing that's most centrally happened coming out of Watergate, and you guys probably both know this as political junkies, is that there were these huge reforms that were put in place. Every single uh, major campaign finance reform, every effort to get money out of politics, to recognize how much it was infecting our political discourse and our political system, came about because people looked at Watergate and said, my God, we've got to get this dirty money, this dark money out of politics. And it is no coincidence Mm -hmm. that by 2016, every single one of those idealistic efforts to keep dark, corrupt money out of our politics had been rescinded, actively rescinded by the GOP or had been allowed to lapse. That is an intentional effort to make sure that the stories we hear in our political spectrum are bad stories that will discourage people, honest citizens who want to have a better, more effective government that will really solve their problems. I think somebody like Jon Stewart is a comedian who, for people on the left, 
profited by our loss of faith in the system. He mm -hmm. teased media and he teased politicians and said to his audience with a wink and a very funny set of writers, hey, they're all corrupt and this whole system is corrupt and it's rigged against you and you can't trust any of them. And people on the left to make themselves feel less crazy and angry laughed at all that. And in doing so, they converted what is real and dangerous civic dysfunction into disposable laughs. They just felt like, well, that's okay. But then you have a guy like Trump who comes along and says, you know what? While Stewart's busy converting this civic dysfunction and this tragedy into disposable laughs, I can use that and, and build raw political power. I can tell the story that everybody in Washington's corrupt and it's a rigged system. And if I get enough people to lose faith in that system and the possibility of government doing good in the lives of the disenfranchised, then I actually have a shot. I can fan that into raw political power if I just tell enough seductive bad stories. And I think, you know, I, I make that point just to push back a little bit and say, look, it's not enough just to tell good stories. You also have to recognize that the people telling bad stories, fraudulent, propagandistic, willfully naive stories intended to sow discord are doing that for a particular reason. They're trying to manipulate people and they're trying to turn people away from what self-governance and democracy is really supposed to be about, which is in some very fundamental way, having a form of government that helps people out when they're struggling. Just as you don't mean bad stories in a shallow way, I just want to say I don't mean good stories in a shallow way. Because, so here's my experience of reading your book as someone who has long identified as a Republican. I find not a lot of space for disagreement with you. I check a lot of boxes personally uh, in terms of reaching across the aisle. When I go into a room- I think you're room, trying to say that you agreed with a lot of what I wrote. I did. <laughs> I agreed I agreed with almost all of what you wrote, Steve. Um, okay. and, and I think I agree with, with Democrats on a lot of very fundamental issues that cause them to identify as Democrats. I support marriage equality. I care about the poor. I mean, there, there, are, there's a long list of things that I can walk into a room, and I've done this, right? I spent a week at the DNC, um, walking around saying, "Look, here's my list. I'm okay, right? I'm one of the okay ones." What I mean by the need to make room for good stories, which is, I think, fundamental to bringing together this coalition of Americans who do agree on some fundamental moral questions is allowing everyone to have that discussion without the need to constantly make that list longer. And, and I am very clear about the fact that the right created this system of box checking. I don't make any um, pretense about where I think things started eroding in our culture. I do think the Republican Party bears disproportionate responsibility for where we are now. I focus on redemption because I don't see how we overcome the special interest and we overcome that sense of hopelessness and we overcome all of the market incentives that have led us to commoditize our politics so substantially and egregiously without allowing all of us to come together and, and say, here are our areas of agreement. Here are the stories that we want to tell as Americans. Here are the ideals that we share. That That's right. why I, I gravitate toward the hopeful, because I don't see a way out of this otherwise. Well, and the other word I would add just real quickly, be too redemptive, is re reconciled. 
reconciliation is something we have really never done in America. And I think the reason we can't, we need to reconcile our stories in a way. I think that we never, we've never faced openly and honestly the sins of our past. Um, We've never apologized to one another for the sins and the harms that have come from that. And so I feel like that that's part of the story, the process that we need to do together when we're talking about our moral values and we're asking questions and we're trying to, it's like, we need to reconcile. We need to find the parts of the stories that we both agree with and the values that we share. I, I mean, I think that's, that to me is a process I think about a lot. I look at the process that went on in South Africa and not that South Africa is perfect, but we never had that process, even though we had these terrible historical sins against portions of our populations. Right. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think what I would ask, since you were asking about questions, you know, is when I, I hear your list about, I, I believe in, here are my values. I want to help the poor. Uh, you know, I support gay marriage. Uh, I, I want us to be able to overcome the special interests. And I, I don't mean this in a way that is meant to be confrontational or rude or, you know, impertinent or whatever. But if that's the case, how can you really, in good conscience, support a party that so obviously, uh, I mean, Mike Pence, I don't want to have to go through a laundry list of everything he said about homosexuals and, and you know, the LBGTQ community that I, I have a good feeling you would be deeply offended by. Uh, or, you know, if, you're, if your intention is to help the poor, then why are you not holding your party accountable? And if they are not to be held accountable, why are you in that party and affiliated with politicians whose policies are almost entirely plutocratic? I, I really mean at a level of, of your own conscience, how do you square being a part of this, your very deeply held values with the policies that the party you vote for and support wants to and is very successfully, by the way, putting in in place. Well, so my attempt to hold my party accountable is staying in it so that I can vote in primaries for different kinds of candidates. I have stopped financially supporting the party. I have voted for Democrats and will continue to do so uh, when I think that's the right thing to do. I don't think America is served by everyone becoming a Democrat. If everyone who holds values that we can all morally come together around joins one party, I don't think that takes us to a good place. So I struggle with this every single day. I struggle with the shorthand of where do I identify. I also believe that there is room, and this is where Sarah and I have really, I think, interesting conversations that, that certainly help me grow. It is true that we can have fundamental moral agreement and still have significant differences into how to translate that agreement to policy. Yeah. And I think it's important that we do that. That's the America I want to live in, where we're having that conversation about springing from these values. How do we best effectuate them? At what level of government do we best effectuate them? Is this a policy that should be effectuated in government, or is this something that we need to talk about amongst ourselves and other institutions? And so to me, the the least moral thing that I could do right now is to say, I'm out, because I don't see a future where we where we get back to that interesting policy discussion if everyone who embraces some of the values discussed at length in your book abandons ship on the other side of the aisle. 
Yeah. Well, and I just well, want to, I'm just hmm. going to chime in real right. quick here. And I think sure. that the bad story I told myself for a decade, most of my twenties and through college was that one party was right. And one party was wrong. Of course, the party I was a member of Democrats were wrong. And I, and I framed everything in that, in that sort of um, binary position. And the story I tell myself now um, that I think is much more helpful and Beth gets full credit for it is she says that she, I am, when it comes to government, I am the gas and she is the bricks. I am the one that's like, well, we have a government. Let's use the government to fix it. And she's like, hold up. Maybe there's another way to do this. And she is the gas and I am the brakes when we come to private interest. She's like, well, let's try let private business try. And I'm like, oh, hold up because they screwed it up here, here and here. So let's talk about right. that. Right. And that and the, and this telling the story that way with Americans, we're a big, messy group. And some people are going to always want to want to have their their foot on the gas when it comes to government. And some people are always going to want to have their foot on the brakes and reverse for private industry. I mean, we can see a million ways in which too much government was bad and too much private industry was bad. And so I think that that when I when I stopped telling myself that this was about, like I said, right and wrong and moral judgments with regards to the two parties. And then I and I saw it more as a gas break balance situation. I think that helped me think about the kind like because like you said, the no matter who they're listening to or no matter what bad story they're telling themselves um, on either side. I don't think anybody has any plans to go anywhere. I don't think California is going to succeed. I don't think Louisiana is going anywhere. Like, so we're still we're stuck here together, guys. And let me say it in a in a tangible recent example that's on my mind. So I said and you asked the question about where Christians are on all of this, Steve. I said in church yesterday, I attended Disciples of Christ Church that espouses a fairly progressive theology. And we were talking about the church itself and the church's mission and vision and how more important, honestly, than the worship services we conduct each week is the fact that hundreds of people go in and out of the church building every single day for Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. There's a daycare that's run. There's There are activities that go on with a low housing, low income senior citizens housing center. We have showers for the homeless. And I was sitting there listening to all of this thinking, I don't know how to articulate to anyone that this is part of why I have historically been a Republican, because I believe in giving without resentment. And I I believe in giving without strings attached. A homeless couple coming into our church to take a shower, even to ask to be married, We aren't thinking, well, you can take a shower as long as you promise not to buy alcohol afterward, or we'll marry you as long as you promise not to have children because you can't afford them or whatever, right? We just give because we want to give because we're giving from a place of caring about the poor. And this is what I mean when we talk about how we can have the same fundamental values and express those through different types of policy. And I want to make room for that again. It's interesting because as you were talking, I hear what you're saying very deeply, and I appreciate that you guys, you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is that the the effort um, of demagogues is always to uh, replace the essence of culture, which is a conversation, a free-flowing set of ideas back and forth with an argument in which only one side's interest can win. I think this is is getting at what you were talking about with this idea that both parties carry around or, you know, is that we're the ones who are entirely virtuous and the other side is totally evil. We have all the answers. They have none of them. That, that kind of thinking is disastrous. 
um, wherever it exists, because people are full of good stories and bad stories. We're all kind of constantly trying to manage our good and bad stories and our good and bad behaviors. And I, and I so much appreciate that you guys want to have a conversation. But as you were talking, one of the things that was really striking me was how strange it is, because I agree with you that there's an idea that, uh, you know, that partly government can only do so much. And it's got to be people's individual sense of compassion and mercy activated by a community of faith or whatever it is, a, a community organization otherwise, um, that has got to sort of care for our own if people are in need or if they're struggling. But what's so odd to me is that there will be policies almost inevitably from the right that basically say, if you want food, food stamps or if you want uh, unemployment, you've got to take a drug test. You've got to do this thing. There are these strings attached because otherwise you're just getting a quote unquote entitlement. You're just getting a quote unquote handout. There's this whole language of personal responsibility that's about saying, actually, there are all these strings attached. If you're going to get anything from the government, you need to be a maker, not just a taker. And I'm just curious how you as a Republican feel about that, since it seems very distinct from how you operate as a citizen in your religious community. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? 
Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Yeah, I think some of what we are struggling with as a party is that there isn't a consistent answer to that question. And we have kind of allowed people who don't have any interest in the fundamental values of the party, the Sean Hannity's and Rush Limbaugh's of the world, to start writing policy for us. Because, and and this is something that Sarah and I talk about a lot. So I might have serious issues with the Affordable Care Act or the JCPOA or DACA procedurally. I totally agree with the substantive outcome of DACA. I don't think that should have been done via executive order. But the fact is, government isn't a dark room with a light switch where we turn it off or on, depending on what party is in power. And I think that's where the influence of the media comes in. I think this comes across very well in your book. We start to treat it that way. So it's it's if I had any concern about our nuclear agreement with Iran, the answer is to get out of that agreement instead of to make progress, to accept where we are and say, what is the next step in responsible governance from here? And I think we've done that in a very kind of perverse way with everything arising out of the New Deal, where people who have had philosophical disagreement with policies like food stamps, Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid have done everything in their power to move in the direction of turning those light switches off instead of saying, but here we are, so what does good governance look like from here? So for me, that's why Sarah and I constantly talk about universal basic income among ourselves, because I believe in some kind of social safety net. I do believe that there is a standard of living below which Americans should not live. I cannot believe that we still have homelessness in this country. That seems like such a solvable problem to me. Yep. But I think that as long as we remain in structures about which so many of us and people on the right and left feel a sense of resentment at times about taxes, right? And so I think we need to change our structures. <laughs> I'm glad that you I don't. don't. I, I think, really don't either. I think either. our tax rate should be, I think the tax rate for the highest earners in this country should go back to the rate they were during the Eisenhower era, which I'm sure you both know was 90%, mm-hmm. or maybe during the Kennedy era when it was 75%. And I think when America was great. Just when well, when out. America was great, but I, I mean, really, <laughs> that was tongue in cheek. Yeah, it, uh, well, th- but that is the era that I think Trump I is in some way calling back to. That out. was an era where you know our tax rate for the highest earners. Why does a man need a hundred thousand acres of land? Was ninety percent, not thirty percent or thirty three percent, or you know. So uh, I do hear what you're saying, but there's a, a part of me that wants to say, well. Uh, you know, let's look at those moments in our history when we seem to feel like everybody was pulling 
together and there was some sense that that government was operating more functionally and what were the circumstances that prevailed during those eras uh you know and the tax rate for the highest earners was 90 percent under eisenhower and it didn't cause our economy to collapse in fact it was the largest boom in our country's history so i i feel like when we get into a set of arguments about sort of how draconian government can be and so forth i'm like wow well you know, too much government is bad. The New Deal pulled us out of a horrible depression that was only government's intervention on behalf of the people that uh, sort of cleaned up the mess that the private industry had created. And the same thing is true in 2009. And, you know, we can look back all throughout the history. I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to argue that, you know, everything the government does is great. There's never graft or fraud or corruption or waste and so forth. But compared to the interests of people whose sole motive is the profit motive, yikes. But here's the thing. That's not where I was going. And this is where I think we get really stuck in stories about each other and we don't make a lot of room. So I think that because we have the bad stories about taxes and about the New Deal era programs, and we have some real fiscal realities to deal with, we need a new set of ways to tackle these problems. And I wonder if we would not all be more open in a, some kind of universal basic income system where we can say to the public, listen, we are still going to assure that there is a certain standard of living for all of our, America, our fellow Americans. Right. And we are going to do that in a different way that saves us some money, probably, because a lot of programs go away. A lot of uh, ways that we have imposed our moral values on one another are going to go away. We're just going to give this freely and be more honest about what it is. Now, will all Republicans rally around that? No. All Democrats fact, won't none. rally around that either. <laughs> but right. some will. And I want to make room for that possibility. That, to me, is where we have to have room for some better stories about each other, or we won't get to have any of these conversations where we're even trying to come to the middle. Well, yeah. and that's what we love yeah. about universal basic income is there are no stories about it yet. Most people are like, what are you talking about? Like, that's right. the best part about issues, some issues and solutions like that is you have to find ones that like people just haven't formulated a dang story about. That's the only way to get into a new space. Well, I think in some ways, part of the reason that and and I guess I would say in an overarching way, I'm not really interested in candidates in particular. I'm interested in policies and what kind of solutions they have. And part of the reason that I was really drawn early on to Bernie Sanders and lots of other people as well, sort of all across the spectrum were, was because he had these big, simple ideas that were something like a, a, a basic income that sort of made people think in a different, larger way about the big challenges ahead. So he basically was saying, and again, this is not getting down to the granular level, but it's where most people I think plugged into him. If we take a little bit of money from the people with 100,000 acres and several yachts and, and a bunch of mansions, if we take just one of their yachts, uh, then we can create a situation where we have a single payer healthcare system or we have college, higher education um, that is provided for everybody who wants it in this country. And it seems to me that ultimately that is a, a, a kind of a, a set of policies that's almost entirely emanating from people on the left. I've never heard of somebody, and it's fascinating to hear this from you, Beth, from the right, who says we should have a basic universal income. Um, and it's not that those people don't exist. Clearly they do. I hear you articulating this. 
But then I sit there and say, geez, if you're concerned about our fiscal realities, you must be incredibly bummed out by this massive tax cut that's going to 83 percent of which is going to go to the corporate sector. I am. I am. I said on our show, this is just a contribution to the RNC. Basically, this is a reelection strategy, not a tax strategy. I think that that when you said that and when you were talking, Steve, about um, the Republican Party and that and that's something else that I have to think about a lot, because I do think that with the Republican media, the right wing media and the Republican Party, a distinction I've been thinking about a lot is tactical versus strategic. And I think that so many decisions were tactical to win the next election and not right. strategic for the long term safety and health of the country. And you hear you hear Republic John Boehner did a very honest, open interview where he said, I was worried too much about my own party and getting them elected and not the good of the country. Honest was upfront right. about it. And you hear Dre Gowdy, who's on his way out, saying the same thing. Right. And so I think that that, you know, it's just so hard. There's just so many layers and there's so many complicating factors because are we talking about Republican Party leadership? Are we talking about people who have ever voted Republican once in their life? Sure. sure are we sure. talking, you know, there's just so much to this. And I think that, um, you know, part of being in this country and listening to all these bad stories and not getting caught up in them, because one of my, the, what's so appealing to me about this book in particular is I've been thinking a lot about that there was this story that Obama got caught up in. I think James Comey got caught up in that, well, they're going to say it's rigged. So we have to be, we have to appear super, super fair because they're going to say it's rigged. And this was the story, right? That, that, well, he's already saying it's rigged and they're going to just take to the streets because it's rigged, rigged, rigged. And, and there's still some of that. Still, we have conversations where we're like, well, we have to appear super fair. Not that I think I'm saying advocating breaking rules, but you can just see the influence of yep. those stories. Um, and I think that that is, is so important to think through. We're so individualistic and we all want to think that we're not influenced by the media and we're not influenced by corporate culture, but we are. And these stories play out, celebra- even celebrity culture. I'm a person who advocates for the importance of celebrity culture because we're still exercising our stories and our values when we talk about Kim Kardashian too. And so I think that, that this framework is so helpful to think through what we are telling ourselves about about our own lives, about the lives of our fellow Americans, about our politicians, yep. about corporate culture, about media. And so, I mean, I just I thank you. I think this book and the, the to think through it in this way is really, really helpful. Well, I appreciate that. You know, one thing that is a, a, a larger um, kind of b- source of bad stories that that I think everybody needs to think about and that I think the, the I've zero in on and the book you talked about Limbaugh, Beth, you're talking about Limbaugh and Hannity, how they've sort of taken over the party. And now all these Republicans who I think are people of conscience to one extent or another are saying, you know what, we have mm-hmm. been ginning up racial resentment to distract people from a politics of economic uplift for long enough. I can't be party to it anymore. I'm retiring. I'm getting out of the business. I think that drift is was actually engineered and came about because of uh, the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. I think we had in place a very uh, moderate, reasonable way of saying media is not allowed to be for-profit propaganda. That's not okay. There has to be a reality check. If, if we're going to have free speech, then it has to be a reasonable debate of controversial issues, whether it's the NRA uh, or the ACLU. Everybody gets a voice at the table to be part of the conversation. You can't just have a one kind of propaganda that's pouring out of these powerful media outlets 24 seven. 
And I think the rise of right wing media is partly is, is the direct result of the fact that we got rid of the fairness doctrine. And we've we've really as a culture forgotten that this isn't actually how media used to work. The, the fairness doctrine was there to to, in fact, stop there from being something called a media echo chamber where you could create your own set of facts and your own reality. It was there to make sure that people like Rush Limbaugh and, and Sean Hannity and Alex Jones were challenged in real time when they said things that were demonstrably false or intended to sow discord or frighten people. Um, you know, and that is, in fact, what the fairness doctrine was about. It was trying to say, we have got to, the, the public airwaves have to be used to serve the public interest. And when we got rid of that, we created the, the, the market essentially for bad stories, for people who make millions of dollars a year telling bad stories. And, you know, Donald Trump did, did nothing more than inherit their ideas and their audience share. And if you weren't tuned in to those voices, you just were confused by how Trump could become so rabidly popular with a particular segment of the American electorate because, but because I'm the kind mm -hmm. of crazy that listens to those shows, I recognize that they had been constructing that reality for a long, long time. And this is why I feel like I'm pushing a little bit, I hope not impolitely on Beth to say, I understand what you're saying. You're, you, you're a person of conscience, but can you not see that your kind of conscience no longer fits in with Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and so forth, that the person in the Oval Office is never going to call and ask your opinion or anyone else's opinion. They're going to, you know, they are just going to figure out how to create the propaganda that allows them to cling to power. That's not a political philosophy. That's a, you know, that's a kind of self-preservation philosophy. It has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with fight or flight. I see it. I see what you're describing. I've talked about it here for two years. I endure uh, emails that are pretty pointed and ugly from people who ex explaining to me that I am not a proper representative of the Republican Party. But I get a lot more email than that saying, finally, there is a Republican who represents me. Because right. I think there are so many of us who are not Democrats in the policy outcomes that we would advocate for, not because of our values or our morals, but because of the expression of those values and morals through policy. There are so many of us who are not represented by Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, or Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. to me, if we cede that ground, the problem with the Jeff Flakes and uh, the Bob Corkers and the people you're describing who are getting out of the game is that they are getting out of the game. You know the game. They're Don't getting go. out of the game. Don't <laughs> get out of the game. What we need are people like me on the radio. We need more people who say, no, here is the perspective that is more the breaks when it terms to the when it comes to the federal government and more the gas in terms of the private sector. But we understand that it's a spectrum. What I don't want to do in my life, because I think I think duality is a bad story. I think the idea that there is good or evil. We care for the poor or we don't. We want everyone to have health care through the federal government or we want sick people to die. Those kinds of Black and white configurations of the world, to me, are the worst story being told right now. And I don't want to feed into that. So I would rather stay a registered Republican and vote against my party's candidates to express that, but still say there is a better conversation that we can be having here. And one in which we're all coming to the table, bringing something 
that is that is frankly more interesting and more multi-layered and that would lead us to better decision making um, than this pitched battle of good and evil. Well, and I just want to say too, Steve, it wasn't rude at all. And I thank you so That's much right, for I coming. And so this is exactly the exactly the kind of conversations that we should be having with each other to to like you to exactly like you said to stop stop telling the stories and stop listen and stop telling the bad stories and start listening to each other and saying like hey I, I hope this isn't rude and I, I but I'm really concerned about this what do you think about this like instead of being like oh agree to disagree moving on it's like my least favorite sentence in the human language no let's not agree to disagree let's listen and maybe we will still disagree that's okay too. But right. the idea that like just to avoid conflict and just so we can live our daily lives when we know that we're yeah. all living in these different stories. Well, let's just stop doing that. To the extent that we can. Yeah. And I hope that I mean, that the intention of the book and I'm very uh, kind of honored and, and delighted that Beth, not to say, you know, you agreed with everything in the book, but that you agreed maybe with the overarching idea and and mm-hmm. and some of the particulars expressed like I'm glad that landed because I don't see it as a partisan or at least I tried to write it in a way that wasn't about partisan issues or it was about this idea of the stories that we're telling and how we have to rid ourselves of certain myths, I guess, and and bad narratives before we can actually start to have the conversation that you guys want to have and are trying mm-hmm. to model having mm-hmm. in the public square. So good on you for that effort. But I think we also have to undo some bad stories before that conversation is is going to become a larger conversation. Definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Take care guys. So we want to thank Steve again for being so open with us. It, you know, there were moments of that interview that felt a little bit awkward to all of us, I think, but I think that good conversation can feel awkward sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it was important to spend that time. And we appreciate that he did. And I appreciate your patience that I had to end the interview in a very ungraceful way because I was running late for a speaking event. And uh, thanks for Steve's patience on that as well. I think it was a discussion that is kind of a roadmap for how we need to have more conversations like this. Mm hmm. Sarah, I just had a hunch that you would want to talk about the royal wedding today. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. So I woke up early. My friends came over, and my husband made scones at 540 in the morning because he is the best person on planet Earth. And my friend Leslie, friend of the pod Leslie, who's been on the podcast before, said it so well. She thought, like, I was going to wake up, and I'm going to see her inducted into the royal family. Instead, it was this beautiful ceremony that was really Felt like them both saying, like, nope, this marriage is going to be about both of us. So they had the presiding bishop— of the Episcopal Church. I'm an Episcopal. So when he showed up, I was like, what's the presiding bishop doing there? And he did this fiery, amazing sermon. And then they had this gospel choir sent straight from heaven that sang the most beautiful rendition of Stand By Me, a song I don't even really love. And it was just all so good. And everybody looked so pretty. And Oprah was there. And George Clooney and Amal Clooney were there. And it just was, it was amazing, you guys. Okay. Here's where I am. (laughs) (laughs) I am straight up neutral on royal wedding watching. Like, I don't bash it. I also prioritized other things, so I did not get up to watch it. I did watch the sermon, which I thought was incredible. I've had Balm of Gilead in my head all afternoon. But you watched the choir, too, yeah? I I have not watched the choir, (gasps) but I will do that upon your Oh, my God, they're so good. But I'll tell you what made me so happy about it was it was like the most 
positive version of America on display and American Christianity in particular. And we don't get a lot of those. And I was so grateful to Reverend Curry for that. Well, because let's just be real. It was primarily a reflection of black America, which is really doing the heavy lifting right now on this stage. And Particularly what it made me think of is Robert Borg wrote this book. It's got a cheesy name. Just trust me. It's good. It's called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. And he talks about all these different stories. And since the theme of this episode is stories, the stories in the Bible, and that there's a lot of emphasis, particularly in the evangelical church, of the story of sort of um, sin and redemption in the New Testament. But there's these other amazing stories of like freedom from bondage and freedom from exile found in the Bible that I think primarily the African-American church has sort of um, preached and embodied and is this other beautiful story coming from the Bible. And that's what it made me think of. Like, it's just such a different version of church and it's a different type of story told in church. And it was just so good. And it was just, I was so proud of being Episcopal. And I just love the whole thing, you guys. Also, Brandy Brown's an Episcopal. Just throwing that plug in there, too. It's not surprising that Black America is doing the heavy lifting on that right yeah, now. It's true. not surprising that one of the best pieces of art we've had in, I don't know, for a long, long time is Donald Glover's music. Oh, Charles Gambino. Mm, yes. This is America. This is and America. And Beyonce. Forever and Beyonce. Beyonce. I mean, I think this all just gets to the point that we try to make every time we talk about diversity and inclusion, which is let's not live in that anemic way that Jen Hatmaker talked about. Like, let's mm-hmm. not let's not play with half the team sitting out. You know, there's such there's so many good stories to be told and so many great representatives of our country and so many great artists and leaders who just haven't had the microphone. I'll tell you something that I think about pretty much every day in connection with my coaching work, because I spend a lot of time working with women who are trying to assert themselves more, is like our organizations are missing it. They are missing the talent that these women bring to the table and the voices that they have. And so I think it's just no wonder that on the international stage, some of our best is is relatively new coming from us. And that's too bad because what all have we missed throughout history? But thank goodness we're getting there. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the other, I'm glad you brought up Donald Glover because I've also been finishing the second season of Atlanta this weekend. Y'all, that show, that show is so good and insane. They have this episode. I don't even know how to describe it. It's sort of a standalone episode. Um, I think the name of it is Meet Tony Perkins about a like reclusive African-American music star. It has like these weird, and it's Donald Glover the whole time. It has like these weird Michael Jackson vibes. So good. I mean, he's, I just love that show. I think that show is so genius. Big, big fan, big fan over here. And like, I just always think back to Tracy Clayton from Another Round, who we heard speak at Podcast Movement saying basically like, you've been asking us to enjoy white entertainment for years and not and telling us not to think it's just for white people. And you should do the same for black entertainment. Like, just because it feels like it's just for black people doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. And that is like, it was so impactful for my life and really changed my media viewing habits for the better. Speaking of media and culture, the thing I wanted to ask you about today in this section is whether you've seen Killing Eve. Okay. Oh, my God. That's what. <gasps> Mind reader. That's what else I did this weekend <laughs> is I caught up on that, too. I was like trading off because my Roku was being a jerk and not letting me watch this episode. Like I watched about four episodes of 
Atlanta. I was like, okay, I'm going to catch up on Killing Eve. And it was being a jerk, so I was going back and forth. But yeah, I'm caught up. But I haven't watched last month, last night's episode because I don't know when it shows up on Roku, Roku. But it's so good. Oh, my God. It's so good. I love Sandra so much. And I it's really like so Villanelle. It's so uncomfortable. Oh, it's so good, though. But it is. At first, I, mean, I thought it was going to be just scary. But it's really not. It just it flips everything you think about women on its head, right? It is mm-hmm. like such an unconventional portrayal of lots of different kinds of women, which mm-hmm. is what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me uncomfortable. I have to watch something mind-numbing after I watch it before I can go to bed. Like, I must follow it with The Great British Baking Show or um, Modern Family or something like that as, like, a little mental palate cleanser. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I love how it is it is all kinds of depictions of, like, what could be new feminine archetypes mm-hmm. that are so divorced from romance. And it's just – it's really refreshing. And like I said, the girl, I think Jody, I can't remember her last name, who plays Villanelle, the the sort of assassin that Eve is hunting. Oh, she's so good. She's so good when she broke. Okay, I'm not going to say anything else. Sorry. Well, if you if you have no spoiler watched the show to just give you a brief overview, it is about a female assassin who is being tracked by a female, basically spy who kind of. Un- unlikely spy who is being mentored by a woman spy and it's just so interesting it's just you it's just something that you haven't seen before and it's nice and the men are the ones who keep getting killed off for a change sorry i'm not like rejoicing one character in particular i did not want to see die but i'm just like oh i don't ever see shows where the women are the ones left standing and the men are all killed off that's not a thing that happens very much on tv But here it is. So yay Mm -hmm, for different mm -hmm. art forms. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pansy Politics. Thanks for hanging in with us through what we know has been a long one. We appreciate all of you. We'll be back on Wednesday. Sarah has a conversation with Tish Oxenreiter to share on The Nuanced Life. We know that you'll love it. We'll be here again on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pedoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.